If you have a Bible, if you turn to Romans 11, so we're going to finish up this study we've had on uh, Israel. And tonight we're going to begin reading in uh, verses 25 to 29. Romans 11, 25 to 29. And we'll pray. Father, I just thank you once again for meeting with us here tonight. That your presence is here with us. And just ask you to open all of our minds and hearts to the truth of your people Israel and their significance in these end times. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. So, Romans 11.25, we'll begin reading there. And it says, Paul wrote, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So we said last time that Paul was raising the question at the beginning of Romans chapter 11. We looked at that. Has God cast away his people. So is God done with the nation of Israel as his chosen people? And has the church replaced Israel as the new Israel, which a lot of people are teaching these days? And we said that Paul's answer was pretty emphatic. And it was, God forbid, there's no way that's happening. That is not happening, which seems pretty straightforward. And he backs it up with two examples. He says, hey, look at me. If you think God is done with his people, just look at me because I am a Jew of Jews. I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's like, if you're saying God has totally cast off his people, then what are you going to do with me? That's kind of what he says. That's, that's what he begins with. And then he also talks about that the scripture says there's a remnant that God has always maintained. He says, don't you remember that Elijah thought that he was the last of the Jews. He was the only one left. And God had to remind him, wait a minute, I'm seeing something that you're not seeing. There are 7,000 people out there. Now, there was more than 7,000 descendants in the sense of the flesh, but there was only 7,000 of the promise. That's what he made to Abraham. He said there will be a promise seed. But he says there's 7,000 of them out there that you just can't know about, that I know about, that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul goes on to say here in Romans 11, back in verse 5, he says, at this present time, he says, at the time I'm writing this letter to you, Romans, there's a remnant now. And I'm saying as we speak tonight, there's a remnant. God has always had a remnant because he's faithful to keep his word to Abraham. He has never allowed the Jews to be totally cut off. You know, so Novin told me, she came up after last week's teaching, and, you know, I was saying how that city in Germany, they had all those, they knew where those people had come from, what tribes they descended. And she said, well, her mother told her, I believe it was the tribe of Levi. She said, she told us that's where we're from. She's of the tribe of Levi. So how'd you know that? She goes, just passed down through all those generations. And they're a very close family-oriented people, the Jews. That's very possible. I have no trouble believing that, that a lot of them actually would know who they're descended from. And we said last time, and in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 11, Paul goes on to use the imagery of 
the olive tree. And he says the root of the olive tree is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the covenants and promises that God made to them. That is the root. And the tree that sprang up out of that root is who? Ethnic Israel, national Israel. That is the tree that sprung up, but not all, he tells us, of ethnic Israel is Israel, are they? And so those branches that aren't part of that tree, in a sense, they're not, eth or they're not part of the promised seed. What happened to them? They're cut off. That's what we read. They got cut off because of unbelief and disobedience. And when they were cut off, God took branches from a wild olive tree, the Gentile nations, that's us, and grafted them in. So we were made partakers of Israel's tree. We're grafted in, we said, to the commonwealth of Israel. So we're just as much God's people as they are. But we're grafted in, we need to remember, into their tree. We're still Gentiles, and they're still Jews. We just get to be part of their commonwealth is what it teaches. And so how are the Gentiles us? How are we grafted into that tree? So it's not of him that willeth. It's not of him that runneth. God that shows mercy, his goodness, and we exercise faith. Faith in God's goodness through the Lord Jesus Christ is how we are in that tree. And because they didn't have faith and tried to do it by works, God said he cut them off. So it takes us up here to verse 25. And look at the beginning. So sometimes the little words make a big deal. And you have a few of those here in, in verse 25 we're looking at. And it begins with four. And that's significant because what Paul's saying is, there's a reason I have told you all what I just told you, especially about the tree and the fact that you're grafted in. He's saying, there is a reason. There's something you need to understand, he's telling them, that is very important. He says, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant, to be uninformed. There is something you need to know that's very important, and it is a mystery. Can't be ignorant of this mystery. And a mystery that he's talking about there, it doesn't mean a riddle that nobody can understand. It's beyond our human comprehension. <laughs> I could give you a riddle that probably most people wouldn't get, and it'd be like, that's not what he's talking about. You're trying to guess it, and you've got to be real smart and clever, otherwise you'll never know it. That's not what he means by a mystery. What he means is it's been a secret, something that needed to be revealed, but it's been part of God's eternal plan that he has hidden but Paul is saying, up to this time it's been hidden, but now it's been revealed. No, it's not a mystery. It's not a secret that you can't know. It has been revealed. And he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. It's something that you really need to know. It's open to everybody. So he's saying, I don't want you to be in the dark of this mystery. Not so that you can have insider information on spiritual gossip. That's not the reason. But to keep them what? Look in verse 25. He says, for I would... For I would not, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery, and here's why. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits. He's saying, I don't want you to get proud so that you're not wise in your own conceits. Wise in your own opinions. And he goes on to say, this is what this mystery is. Here it is. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so up until that revelation was given to Paul, nobody understood that. It was there in the Old Testament, but nobody could put it together. 
until God revealed it unto his apostles, and especially the apostle Paul. So what he's saying is, if you don't understand this mystery, you don't have a knowledge of this mystery and get hold of it, there's a danger. And he's warning the Romans about that. He's saying, you all, you need to make sure you understand this or you're going to be in danger of something, of being proud of what God's done to you and having a bad attitude towards these Jewish people. And he's saying that pride will lead to a fall. God will cut you off just like he cut them off. We need to maintain a proper attitude towards the Jewish nation, which brings me to something that I want to crystallize, I guess you could say, a little bit better. Because some, I think, may be wondering why have we spent four weeks, and this will be the fourth week and the last week, on discussing the future of Israel. And I actually did have somebody ask me the question, why would the devil come up with this error of, I've been talking about replacement theology. Why would the devil come up with an error like that? And what the other question was, well, what's the danger to believers in embracing it? In other words, what's the big deal? Is this just a theological debate? And I would say it's not just a theological debate. But to answer the first question, why would the devil come up with this error, this error of replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel as God's people? Well, here's the thing. I think if you took notes, or I'm not big on saying go back and listen to the tape, but <laughs> I think we pretty well proved that Israel is God's chosen people. Of all the nations of the earth, he said, I have known you of all the nations of the earth. And we've already seen, have we not, that that doesn't change. Because look down in verse 28. Look what he says. As concerning the gospel, or verse 29, I'm sorry, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So he's called that nation, given them gifts, made them a special people, and it says it doesn't change. That's what that word repentance there means. He's not going back on that. It's forever going to be the way it is. But we also know this. The devil has nothing but pure hatred for God. There is not, in case you're wondering, and actually they argued this at my seminary, that somehow there's some kind of goodness in the devil. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. There is no trace of love for God or any goodness at all in Satan. None. And there's no trace or love for anything that is of God's, that he claims his own. Nothing but pure hatred in the heart of Satan. And so here's the thing. He once was, though, the anointed cherub, pretty high up. And God, it says in, in Ezekiel, had set him in that place. So the devil, Satan, was highly favored of God. God had his eye on him, it says, until iniquity was found in him. And he rebelled against God, and God cast him down. And why was he lifted up? Because of his beauty, his wisdom, and his power. He was lifted up. And so God cast him down, and now God has this chosen people, Israel, that he has his eye on. And Satan, I would say, is full of nothing but pure jealousy and hatred for this entire race, the Jewish nation. And so he has tried to destroy them since the beginning of when they existed. I mean, take the book of Haman. Haman was out and almost succeeded in destroying every Jew in the Persian Empire, which would have been the then known world. Just a tool of Satan to exterminate that race, was he not? And God had to do what? He had to supernaturally intervene. <laughs> and I think it's funny the way God had to supernaturally intervene. I mean, he could have come down there and struck them all with a the bolt of lightning. But instead, you know how he intervened? 
to keep his people from being exterminated, he gave somebody a dream. Gave the king insomnia. And that's the wisdom of God. Haman's got this plan. He's got this plot. He's going to wipe. And Satan's behind it. Probably thought, man, this is locked. They can't change this law. That was the way. He didn't change the law either. But, ah, nah. God's a little bit smarter than that. He says, now I'm going to keep the king up tonight. Have him eat some bad pizza. He's going to try to go to sleep and have something read to him that will put him to sleep. And lo and behold, he finds out old Mordecai never did this guy a favor. Need to help him out. A Jew. A despised Jew. So Haman ended up being hung on his own gallows. His pride and arrogancy, just like the devil, hung him low. And listen, it's that way with the Arabs. They're jealous. They despise Israel. I mean, if you go over there, Israel is a clean nation compared to went over to Jordan. It was filthy. And you just couldn't wait. It's just nasty. You couldn't wait to get out of there. You go to Israel. I mean, we went by a field in Jordan. It had just been plowed and planted, and there was trash, literal trash thrown all throughout that field. I'm like, and then you go by Israel. They got everything nice and neat. Everything's clean, is it not? And you're glad to be back there. And they hate him for that because they're God's people and God's blessing those people. And so through the centuries, there has been various attempts to banish Jews. It's happened. They've been banished from entire countries. Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian tried to wipe out the entire Jewish religion, banish it. They've been slaughtered in masses in countries. And an anti-Jewish spirit has always been present in this world. Okay, so here's the significance of why I went through that this replacement theology has been in the church almost from the beginning. And it's still in the church. And it's rising and coming back. But the reason we went through all that, and I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but the reason I did is because as a result of that anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic replacement theology that was in the Christian church, promoted thousands of years by the Catholic Church, who was the only church strongly against the Jews. And the Lutherans were the same way with Luther, with this replacement theology. What that led up to was the Holocaust. That's what enabled that to happen. Europe is turning a blind eye to what Hitler's doing. People didn't like the Jews in general in Europe. They hadn't for centuries. And so what is the big deal about this replacement theology? I'm saying that is how the devil is trying to destroy these people. Hitler was totally inspired by the devil. He's a type of the Antichrist. Do we not see that? He is definitely a type of the Antichrist. In so many ways, his rhetorical skills, his charisma that he had, his rise to power, his pride and ambition, and more to the point, Hitler is going to be like the Antichrist in the sense of his pure hatred for the Jews. He hated the Jews with a passion. So we have the final solution he come up with to get rid of the, once and for all this menace, the Jews, the ruin in the world. That's what he thought. That's what Hitler thought. And he did it because there was a strong anti-Semitic spirit in Germany and, like I said, throughout all of Europe. But let me ask you a question. Here's the thing. My wife pointed this out. You think about it, how long Hitler became chancellor in 33, and how long did it take him to get this program, this holocaust, this annihilation of the Jews? Their businesses are destroyed, their synagogues are burned, they're herded around like cattle. 
families are separated. Their experiments are done on them while they're still alive with no anesthesia. I mean, treated like absolute worse than animals. How, how long did it take to happen? Six short years. That's all it took. And that's why I'm thinking, why am I talking about it now? How long do you think it's going to take for the Antichrist? You, think this, you don't see how rapidly this world's changing with all its attitudes towards Christianity and now towards the Jewish people, despite the Holocaust? You think it's got to take a long period of time? You think we're immune from that, from the pressure that's going to come with that? And here's two lessons that Hitler learned that enabled him to gain support for killing the Jews. And the first one was, it's easy to attack people that are already marginalized. And they had been marginalized, and they're becoming marginalized again. People are suspicious of them. People are being taught they're oppressing the Palestinians, and they have no right to do that. And so when you embrace this replacement theology, the Jews are no special people. And right, what right do they have to keep these Palestinians to having a homeland with them? They have no right to do That's the kind of thinking that comes on. They're a marginalized people. And the other thing he learned was the general public, they're more likely to participate or tolerate attacks on minorities if they stood to gain rather than to lose from such activities. And so he made it to where he presented it in a way, it's to your gain to get rid of these people. They're marginalized. We don't like them anyways, and that's all that's happening. Well, we'll go along with that. We'll tolerate it. May not like it. Wish it wasn't happening in a lot of cases. But a lot of times they participate in it. So I'm saying People that embrace this replacement theology at best have tolerant attitudes towards marginalizing Jews. And my contention is it's an open door because I'm not saying everybody that embraces a form, there's different forms of replacement theology. So I'm not saying everybody that embraces that is not a Christian or wants to do Jews in. I'm not saying that. It varies in degrees because there are some that claim to be Christian today that embrace replacement theology, it would just as soon have them dumped in the Mediterranean Sea. That's exactly what they've said. So there's variations on it all. But at best, you're going to have a, an, a blasé attitude. You're not going to have a love for the Jews, is what I'm saying. And so Satan is once again, in these last days, is going to attempt to wipe out Israel totally. It's called Jacob's Trouble. And we'll read about it tonight in Zechariah 12 and Revelation 19. It tells us there, especially Zechariah 12, that the armies of the earth are going to be gathered together to wipe out Israel. So here we had one nation, Germany, trying to do it. But in the last days, it's going to be the world is against them to wipe them out. Everybody's going to want to get rid of them. It's a spirit. It's taken back over this world. The spirit of the Antichrist. And how are these nations, all the nations of the earth, how are they going to be convinced to join the Antichrist to annihilate Israel? And I think this doctrine of replacement theology rising in the church again is going to aid that, aid that attitude, work on it. And so listen, it worked in Hitler's Germany. It allowed Christians to turn a blind eye. And I'm telling you, many just turned a blind eye, professing Christians. And it's on the increase again. And I'll tell you, it's going to work again. It will. Because that's what the Bible says. They won't be able to destroy Israel, but it'll, people will be gathered to try to do that. I just had a brother last night telling me on his job, a certain denominational preacher is working with him, and he said, I couldn't believe how they're talking against Israel. 
He said, you know, you get start getting your eyes open to what's going on and listen to what people say. And it's, I'm telling you, it's more widespread than you would think. So that's the second question is, what's the danger to believers in embracing it? And I would say the first thing is, here, there's a danger when you have an attitude towards a person or anything that's different than God's attitude towards that person or group. And as I said, I think, look, we're in 11, just turn back to 9. I think what the sorrow that Paul's expressing in chapter 9 in the beginning of verse 10 is not just his personal feelings. He's expressing the feelings of God. I really do. So he says in chapter 9, verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lay not, I lie not. My conscience also bury me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And when you look over in chapter 10, he says, brethren, he's saying, this is my desire and prayer. Now, somebody that believes in replacement theology isn't going to have this desire and prayer. But I think he got it from the Holy Spirit. That's why it's in the Bible. And he says, my desire and prayer to God for Israel is what? That they might be saved. And that should be our desire for those people. Not like we don't care what happens to them. Our desire should be that they would be saved. So, you know, we're looking back to chapter 11 at the beginning of verse 1. I would also say when Paul says, has God cast away his people? I mean, God calls them his people. Why is he going to cast? And he says, no way. So to say God doesn't care about them, they're not special to him. When they call them, he's called them his people. They're his. And look down, chapter 11, look down in verse 28. It says this, as concerning the gospel, they, speaking of Israel, are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are what? Beloved. Beloved by who? <laughs> by God, for the Father's sake. So they're beloved by God for the, the Father's sake. So yeah, Paul doesn't deny they're being chastened. But why is Israel being chastened? Because God loves them. Not because he hates them. Not because he's trying to destroy them. And do away with him. He could easily have done that. He could have done that back in the days of Moses. But no, he's got a love for them. So if you would, put something there in Luke 11 and turn back, or put something there in Romans 11 and turn back to Luke 13, please. So we're still answering the question, what should our attitude be towards ethnic Israel? And what danger is it not to have the right attitude towards them? So I want to show, look here and see what our Lord's attitude towards Israel was. Look what he says in Luke 13, verse 34. And here's the Lord. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and stoned them that are sent unto thee. And listen to the passion here. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen does gather her brood under her wings. And you would not. And behold, he says, your house is left unto you desolate. And truly I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And there's four things we can see there. And the first thing is we see Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, love and concern for the Jewish people. 
I mean, it comes right on Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's saying, isn't that what we said? God said, all day long I've stood out to you, a disobedient people with my arms outstretched. That's what he's doing here. Oh, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you in? That's, that's God's attitude. That's the Lord. That's not just Paul. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, his attitude towards his people, God's people, his love and concern. But then you also see at the end of that, verse 34, their rejection of him. And what does he say? I wanted to gather you all in. My heart's towards you all. But what did he say? You would not. So what's that verse say we read last time in Romans 10? All day long have I stretched out my arms to a disobedient and gainsaying people. They wanted nothing to do with him. And that's what we see there. And so as a result, the branches are pruned, we see in verse 35. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And so a lot of these replacement people will say that means they're finally cut off. Is that is there, if there was a period there, I might say, yeah, you might have a little bit of a point. He's talking about the pruning there, where he's cutting those off. These Jews here that were in unbelief and disobedience, their house is left desolate. And yes, the temple was going to be destroyed. Jerusalem was going to be laid waste. That's what he's saying here. But does that mean it's over for them as a people? Because look what he goes on to say, the fourth thing, their future restoration. He says, your house your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, you shall not see me. And here's a word we're going to look at in Romans. It doesn't say period, you shall not see me. It says what? Until there's going to be a restoration. It's not final. Until what's going to happen? A time's going to come, is it not? Is that not what it says? When you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And we're going to look at when that time's going to come. Yeah. And it'll be all of them. So what, I don't, honestly, I don't understand replacement theology. I mean, I understand it. I do. But I don't agree with it. I think it's wrong. But I think that clearly shows God's heart and what's going on. That's basically Romans 11 we just read right there. So if you go back to Romans 11, so he's telling us here through this chapter, Paul is, that our attitude should be what God's attitude is because he first of all says we should not have a boastful or arrogant attitude towards God's people. And that's verse 18. He says, what does he tell you there? Boast not against the branches. But if you boast, remember that the root is the one that's holding you up. You're not holding the root up. That root of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the covenants and promises are what's keeping you going. It's not the other way around. So he's saying, first of all there, your attitude should not be one that should be boastful. Down in verse 20, he also tells them you shouldn't be arrogant or high-minded. Verse 20, well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, those Jews. And you stand by faith. And there's a warning there. Paul says, hey, so be not high-minded, but what? Fear, because he goes on to say, he did it to them, and you got a bad attitude towards them, or you don't continue in God's goodness, he can just as easily do it to you, and he will. God so say, What's the problem with embracing replacement theology? A boastful, arrogant attitude towards the Jews that were chosen and they no longer are? Oh, boy, you're, you're heading into Dangerville there, I would say. <laughs> right? And the other thing, we just read it down in verse 25. He says, I'm telling you this about this mystery of what's happened here so you're not wise in your own conceits. So I would just say, hey, 
do you not think about it? A theology, the replacement theology that says the church has replaced Israel as God's people and that the nation of Israel is no more special to God than the nation of Guam? That's what they would say. Would not lend itself. You don't think to accept that concept, that idea, that theology would not lend itself to have an arrogant, high-minded, conceited attitude towards the nation of Israel? I would say you're opening a door possibly to that. Like I said, I don't think every one of them is that way. You're sure opening a door. <laughs> because I say that because history has proven it. That's what happened all throughout church history. And people developed these attitudes towards the Jews, anti-Jewish thinking, anti-Semitism. And that's what Paul is warning the Romans of. It must have been already happening there. Why else would he write three warnings of not to have certain attitudes if it wasn't a problem and if it couldn't be a problem for us? Yeah. Amen. So, <laughs> all I want to say is history, I believe, has shown that people, groups, countries, that have had a positive attitude, a biblical attitude towards Israel, it's brought revival and blessing. So in 1839, this is one of my favorite revivals to read about. They had a, a major revival in Scotland. And for those of you that do much reading, two men were major figures in that revival. William Burns, who was just an unbelievable evangelist. I mean, unbelievable, but very little heard of. And partially because he up at his height of his career went and went by himself over to China and believed God had him there and was there a lone missionary amongst the Chinese and died. Basically unheard of, but man, did he have an impact because he met Hudson Taylor over there and he gave Hudson Taylor some insights that Hudson Taylor never forgot and it enabled him to have the worldwide impact he's had over in China. <laughs> but these two guys, Burns and McShane, Major figures. McShane took a little trip over to Israel, and God put it on him, his heart. He's reading Romans 11, and he's put it on his heart. These are my people. Their salvation is important. Witnessing to them, treating them right, having proper attitudes towards them is important. And what happened was he came back, and he told the Presbyterian church in Scotland, he said, we need to be sending missionaries over there. Because in reading my Bible, I read things like what we read the first week we talked about this is, the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And his thing was, we need to follow that scriptural procedure. And so they sent missionaries over, it hadn't been done, into Palestine, the Presbyterian church, in 1839. And that is when the revival broke out. And I mean, it was a tremendous revival. And McShane said this. He said that scripture that says, blessed is he that blesseth thee. He says, that's a principle that we need to remember. So I'm telling you, back in the Second World War, when these Jews are trying to get out, of, they know they're, they're, Hitler's going to kill them all. Nobody wants them. Nobody will take them. All these countries, nobody will take them in. Nobody's helping them out. But I'll tell you, after that war, America did. America stood by Israel and has stood by Israel ever since. And so I'm saying having a proper attitude towards Israel, I think, brings God's blessing and revival. Because look at our nation. In the 40s and 50s, we had major healing revivals take place here. 60s and 70, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
70s and 80s. Tremendous teaching ministries have come out of the United States. And I sincerely believe God blessed our nation in that way despite all of its sin because of our support for Israel. I mean, the background we have there, the teaching we have, the reason we have this church is because of all that. Seriously. <laughs> it's a result of that. God pouring out his spirit on America. And listen, in 1948, Harry Truman was president. And I'm saying America has stood by Israel when it wasn't. And everybody in his War Department cabinet wanted nothing to do with Israel. From his top dog, Marshall, he said he thought he was the greatest American that ever lived. Marshall said, have nothing to do with that. Don't co-sign with Israel. But Harry Truman said, listen to this. Here's what he wrote in his memoirs. He says, Hitler had been murdering Jews left and right. I saw it, and I dream about it even to this day. The Jews needed some place where they could go. It is my attitude that the American government couldn't stand idly by while the victims of Hitler's madness are not allowed to build new lives. A man that stood for what was right. He said, I hear what you're saying. It may not be. The Arabs had all the oil. That's what they were worried about. We won't get their oil if we help out Israel because they're all hating Israel. They'll cut us off. And Harry Truman says, I don't care. I know about the numbers, and I know they're just a little tiny nation. He said, but I am going to do what is right. I'm going to stand for justice as the president and stood by his guns. And we can thank God he did. <laughs> I would strongly contend the danger of replacement theology is that it's the beginning of a slippery slope to an anti-Semitic spirit that is going to be ushered in by the Antichrist. And that is going to end up being a strong, deluding spirit that people will think coming against Israel, destroying them is the right thing to do. Because isn't that what it says in Second Thessalonians? Because people receive not the love of the truth, God will send them strong delusion and they will believe a lie. And the lie is that God hates his people, that Israel needs to be taken off this map. It's the same lie that was presented by Hitler, the final solution. And I'll tell you what happens. You embrace one error, and it leads to another, and another, and it messes you up. Because the Bible's all interconnected. Truths are interconnected. When you start getting messed up on one, you're in danger of getting other things messed up. And it affects your ethics. It affects everything. This isn't just some intellectual game. It's for real. So back to our text, Romans 11.25. Paul says this at the end of that chapter. He says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So he says blindness has happened to Israel, but he says it. Does he say it's happened to the whole nation once and for all? What does he say there? What does it read? Blindness what? In part has happened. Not the whole nation. Partial blindness. That means part of them. Not that they're just partially blinded, each person. No, he's saying there's just some people in that nation are blinded. Not all. Because we've already talked about that there's a remnant. And does he say that they've been permanently set aside as a nation? Because... He's saying what? And this is another little word here that's important. He says, blindness in part has happened to Israel. In other words, if there was a period there, okay. But there's another little word after that. What is it? Until. It's a very important word. Because that word until means that something goes on for a period of time up to a point, And then it stops. 
That's what that word until means. So he's saying blindness in part has happened to Israel until there's going to come a point in time he's saying it's going to stop. This blindness. So you tell your kid for a punishment, they have to sit in a chair. You go sit in that chair, boy. And you're not going to get up until I come and tell you. Do they sit there and think, man, I'm never getting out of here. They might think it. But in reality, they don't think they're chained to that chair for the rest of their life, right? So they know they're going to have to sit there until a point, right? Because you said what to them? You sit there until I come back. So that means there's going to come a point in time. They sit there and know this may seem like eternity, but dad is going to come back and this is going to end. My punishment is going to end and I'll be free to go and play. So that until is saying it's not permanent with Israel. It's not final, but until their chastisement is over. So he's telling them this is going to go on, this hardening, partial hardening for a period of time up to a point, and then it's going to end. And what does he say is going to end it? It's right there. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until what's going to end it? The fullness of the Gentiles become in. That's what's going to end it. And when that happens, guess what? Israel gets to go out and play. They can get out of that chair, so to speak. Because the fullness, the fullness of the Gentile, that word means a full number. That which is brought to completion. And so Paul's telling us here that there is coming a day in the future when no more Gentiles will be brought into God's kingdom. It's over. The full number has come in. There'll still be some around. But at that point, evangelism is a waste of time. That's what that's telling us there. So Israel right now is partially hardened, which enables the Gentiles to come in. And that's going to happen until the fullness has come in. And only God knows when and how many people that'll be, when it's going to happen, and how many people the fullness of the Gentiles in. But the thing we do know is there is a time when that last Gentile is going to walk through the door, and for the Gentiles, the door is shut. And I would contend it's not far away. It's not that far away. And so when that happens, that last Gentile is saved, the partial blindness of the nation of Israel is going to be lifted. And then we have verse 26. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so, meaning when that happens, all Israel will be saved. Not part of Israel like it is now. All Israel will be saved. So Paul wants us to know, this is what he's telling us in verse 25, that Israel's blindness is only partial, it's only temporary, so don't be arrogant. Have an arrogant attitude towards those people because God is not done with them by a long stretch. Because look what he's saying there. Look up in verse 12. He's saying when the fullness of that nation comes in, it's going to be a bigger blessing to the world than anything else that's ever happened. Look in verse 12. He says if the fall of them is the riches of the world, and it is. It enables all the world to be saved. It was just Israel. And the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentile, he says, how much more their fullness. When all Israel will be saved, he says, it's been a blessing to the world at this point because salvation is brought to the Gentiles, he said, but when they are brought in their fullness, he's saying, how much more is it going to be? And look in verse 15, for if the casting away of them, Israel, be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? In other words, what we just read about in verse 26, what shall the receiving of them be 
but life from the dead. Well, what does he mean by that? When they come in, there's going to be life from the dead. You know what that's saying? When Israel comes in, you know what's going to take place? The Lord Jesus Christ has come back to this earth. And the resurrection of the just and the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ for 1,000 years will take place. And that's what he's talking about in life for the dead. And it will be the answer. If you're a Christian, the Lord's Prayer, it will be an answer to something that you should be praying for every day. And you know what that is? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what he's saying. The fullness of Israel coming in is going to usher that in, the reign of our Lord on the earth. And he's saying that's going to far surpass anything else we've ever experienced. That's what Paul's telling us here. Because listen, whether we know it or not, the Lord Jesus Christ reigning on this earth, that is going to be the only government that has been God-ordained and legitimate in all of time. It really is, that has been ever produced. So let me ask you this. You think America's so great? We've got elections coming up. And let's just say Donald Trump gets elected. Do you think Donald Trump will reign in meekness like the Lord Jesus Christ? I just asked the question. So when he comes back, we are going to have the most perfect government possible. You know what it'll be? A benevolent dictatorship. So people hear dictatorship, I don't want that. Oh, no, that is the best form of government if the first part's on there, benevolent. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be totally just, totally benevolent. That's the perfect government, a benevolent dictatorship with the Lord Jesus Christ as our dictator. And that's what we should be praying for. And that's what will happen. And he's saying, so, hey, you got an attitude towards Israel? Oh, no. Man, you should want them to be saved as a nation, praying for that to happen. Because when that happens... This earth is going to be glorious. When they turn to the Lord as a nation, all Israel will be saved. And I think every single, now there's a debate on this, whether it's all Israel just in a general sense or literally every single individual Israelite. Now, I don't want to get into all the reasons, but I believe it's going to be every last single Jew on this earth at that time. It's going to be brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. No exception. I believe all the branches at that point will be holy, all of them. So we went through that one time a couple weeks ago that every time Paul uses the word Israel in Romans 9 and 9 through 11, he is every time without exception talking about ethnic Israel, national Israel. And the replacement people will want to say that in this verse right here, verse 26, that he's not talking about ethnic Israel, but about spiritual Israel, all of God's people that have been saved down through the centuries. But I'm telling you, if you read it in context, that doesn't even make sense that that's who it would be. Because look back in verse 25, he's clearly comparing and contrasting Israel, national Israel, with the Gentiles. The blindness in part has happened to Israel. We know he's talking about the nation until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel should be saved. It's just... Paul's not flip-flopping around and going back and forth and talking about national Israel, spiritual Israel. He's never talking about spiritual Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But they have to fit their little theory into this. Because this is a problem verse for them. It's a verse you need to remember. If you're talking to somebody, it's a very big problem verse. I told you about the professor at Southern I had, big shot professor, written a lot of main big-time commentaries, very smart person. 
And he wasn't a millennialist that said, hey, there's not going to be any millennium. Israel's nothing. All of that. Replacement theology. He got to this, though, and he says, hey, I'm going to have to be honest. An honest interpreter, like we talked about Sunday, rightly dividing the word of truth. And he says, when I do that, I don't want it to say what I know it says. I'd rather have it say something else because it fits in my theory better. But I got respect for a person like that. He says, wait a minute. This can't mean anything but national Israel. And yes, God will restore them. Amen. That's right. And you got to respect a person like that. And that's how we need to approach the word of God. We're not going to fit our truth into it, but let its truth mold and shape our thinking, our lives, our ethics. Not what we want to do, no matter what we're talking about, but what he says the way it is. That's the way it's got to be. So as usual, Paul goes on when he says something like that in verse 26 and backs up what he says with Old Testament scripture. So he says, and so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. Here's my backup. Here's where Paul says, I'm proving it by this. And he quotes Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27 combined here, verses 26 and 27. He says, and there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Isaiah 59. And I'm saying the context of that verse is very interesting in light of what we're talking about. So I don't know whether you remember it or not, but Isaiah 59 is what we looked at on Sunday. We looked at verses 14 and 15 on Sunday. And what do we read there? Truth has fallen in the streets. Yea, truth has failed. And this is when Jesus is going to come back for his people. That's what's going to be going on. And verse 19 in Isaiah 59 is the often quoted verse we know. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. So the context of when the deliverer is going to come, truth has fallen in the streets. The devil's strong delusion has taken over the world. They're believing a lie. Nobody's hardly living the truth, if anyone, right? Truth has fallen. The Antichrist is reigning in his terror, and the Jews are about to be wiped out literally again, just like in the days of Hitler. And that's when it says, verse 26, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, Isaiah 59, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So he is going to come back. The Lord Jesus Christ will come back when his nation is about to be totally destroyed. And that is when all Israel will be saved and the nation restored. So put something there and we'll look at it here in Zechariah 12 if you turn back in the Old Testament. So it's important to see this. Zechariah 12. Right before Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah 12, he writes, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretched forth the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, he says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Though all the people of the earth, look what it says, all the people of the earth will be gathered together against it. And in that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah 
and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength and the Lord of hosts their God. And in that day I will make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be habited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. And in that day, look what it says, verse 8, shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then look what he says. All Israel will be saved. I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one that mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And in that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Haladrimon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. They're mourning, they're saying, this is the one we rejected, wanted nothing to do with. And their eyes are open, that spirit of grace, opening their eyes, taking that veil away that's been there all this time. That blindness, that hardness is being lifted. And look what he goes on to say in chapter 13, verse 1. And in that day there shall be a fountain opened in the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. That fountain filled with blood, they'll finally be washed in it as a nation and look over in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. He says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city will go into forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. But what's going to happen? Verse 3. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. In verse 4, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove towards the north and half of it towards the south. Praise God. He said, you'll see me again. You're not cut off, Israel. When you see me again, you'll see blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Why? Because, man, they are getting ready to get wiped out. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes like the cavalry at the last minute. More than the cavalry. Praise God. So look here. Think they're not getting their land back? And that's the big sticking point. Some people will say even the... Some of the replacement people, yeah, well, there'll be a bunch of them say, but they're not getting their land back. None of them will say that. 
across the board. But look what it says in Zechariah 10, 6. Go back a few chapters. Chapter 10, verse 6, and he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Judah, and I will bring them again to place them, for I will have mercy upon them. And look what he says. They're saying they've been cast off. God says, they shall be as though I had not cast them off. <laughs> for I am the Lord and will hear them, the Lord their God. Okay, so I want us to look at, if you can find Joel. I want to read Joel chapter 3. Talks again about God is going to come back and save them, and all Israel shall be saved. Joel chapter 3, it says, For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, once again, it's prophesied, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. And they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for an harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Yea, and what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon and all the coast of Palestine? Will you render me a recompense? And if you recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? Because you have taken my silver, my gold, and have carried them into your temples, my goodly pleasant things. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem, you have sold unto the Grecians that you might remove them far from their border. Like he doesn't care about that. He says, behold, I will raise them out of the place, whether you have sold them, and I will turn your recompense upon your own head, and I'll sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the children of Judah, and they shall sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken it. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles, prepare war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put you in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the lord is near in the valley of decision and the sun and the moon shall be darkened the stars shall withdraw their shining and the lord also shall roar out of zion and utter his voice from jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake but the lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of israel and so shall you know that I am the Lord, your dwelling in Zion, the Lord, your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine. The hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness. Why? For the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever, 
in Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord will dwell in Zion. How can you read passages like that and think God doesn't care about his people and that God is not going to come back and save his people and that God is not going to come back and rule and reign and restore his nation Israel? It couldn't be clearer. If words mean anything, that is what that's saying. So let's go back to Romans 11, verses 28 and 29. He says there is concerning the gospel, Israel, they are enemies for your sake. So Israel right now, they're against the gospel. They are as a nation. They're ungodly. He's saying, but that's for our sake. Because while that's going on, we're enabled to come in. Because they'll persecute you if you're an evangelist over in Israel. They'll persecute you you go over there. That's what he's saying. The people aren't open to the gospel. Enemies, for our sake. But look what he goes on to say. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. God still has his hand on them today. And I mean, I got all kinds of Jewish relatives out in California, and they're heathens. And one of them put moves on my wife when I'm out there visiting. I'm like, I'm not real happy with you, my friend. But man, they make money like crazy, and God blesses everything. His hand's still on them, but they're ungodly. Because they're still his people. And that's the way it's been. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what. If uh, You guys got one more place to look? You got it in you? All right. So turn back to Ezekiel. I got two of them, but we'll just look at one of them, and I'll give you the other one. You can look on your own. But look back in Ezekiel 37. Because we'll see here God is not only going to save them, which a lot of people will conceive, but he's going to bring them back to their land. So go back to Ezekiel 37. This will be the last scripture we'll look at. Ezekiel 37, verses 11 to 14, and it says this. And then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones. So he's looking at these dry bones, and he asked the question, could they ever come back to life? That's what people are saying. That's what the replacement people will say. Those bones are dry and dead, never going to come back to life. That's not what God says. Look what he says. Verse 11, then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and do what to them? Bring you into the land of Israel. If that's not a promise to bring them back to their land, I don't know what is. How is the church going to partake of that? How do you spiritualize that? Verse 13, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened up your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. And look down in verse 21. And I say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and I will gather them on every side and bring them in to their own land. Do we see that? And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, 
Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And they shall dwell in the land. How many times has he said that? That I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And verse 28, and the heathen will know something that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Amen. Amen. That's as clear, that's pretty clear, I think. Don't even really need to give any explanation on that. The other verse, if you want to look on your own, is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 37. So, why should we care about the nation of Israel in the future? I think, first of all, God does. Because God does. That's why we should. And I think it's dangerous not to, because he does. They're his beloved people, even if they are being chastised now. And here's the thing. We didn't go back over this today, but he says through our salvation, it should bring them to jealousy. But not if we're treating them bad. Not if we have an attitude towards them like, who cares, right? Not if we don't have a heart for that nation. Let me ask you, how much do you think people that embrace replacement theology who say Israel's just like any other nation, how much do you think those people pray for Israel? I mean, if I embraced that theology, I wouldn't pray for them at all any more than any other nation. But every Thursday night when we come here, that's the first thing we do is pray for the peace of Jerusalem because that's what he says to do. And that's what we do. And the other reason we should care about their future and their salvation is because it means, we looked at it, life from the dead. So when Israel turns to the Lord, that's going to happen because the Lord has returned. He's placed his feet on the Mount of Olives. And he will rule and reign on this earth for 1,000 years. And the whole world will be blessed and that's why we should care about Israel being restored. And you say, man, it's no big deal. I like it here in America. I like my life here in America. Hmm. You think America is like the Garden of Eden, return to those conditions? Because that's what you're going to get in the millennium, where work is not a curse. Your job been going great this year? Everything been going good? There's not going to be any violence on the earth, no cursing, no locked doors. You won't have to lock your doors. You're not going to lose your job. Peace will reign. Health will be everywhere. Not going to have children going through sickness, no cancer. God's kingdom, Jesus, a righteous ruler reigning over this entire earth. I think that's a big deal. I think that's something to look forward to. I think that's a good reason to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and that God will bring, restore that nation and bring them back. The other reason we should care about Israel is because we owe them a great spiritual debt. We've talked about that. We've been given the promises, the covenants, the law. And most of all, what has Israel given us? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's a Jew. Born a Jew of the flesh, it says. And we also know that salvation is of the Jews. It's not of the state of Kentucky 
It's not of the USA. Salvation is of the Jews. And also, I think our spiritual well-being as a church and individual is wrapped up in a loving attitude towards the salvation of the Jews. Because God does say, I'll bless them that bless you. And blessed is he that blesseth thee. And I think we should be just like our Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, that we should take salvation to the Jews first, the gospel, when we have an opportunity. That's the pattern that's laid down in the Bible. And I mean, there's seminaries, they got outreaches to the Muslims. There's no outreaches to the Jews. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have outreaches to the Muslims. But it still does say to the Jew first. So listen, God has a plan. He's temporarily set Israel aside, cut them off. Not all of them, but some of them, so that we could be grafted in. And it's nothing to be proud about. Because there's going to come a time, Paul's saying, you should know about this mystery, that the fullness of the Gentiles, no more Gentiles are coming in. Don't get proud about it like you're the it, because there's going to come a time he's shutting the door to the Gentiles. And when that happens, he's saying, all of Israel, we read it in Zechariah, he's going to pour his grace out on every inhabitant of that nation. He's not done with those people. They are still his chosen people. And all Israel will be saved. Because God's promise that he made to Abraham that started this whole thing, that root, is going to be come to pass fully. Demonstrated to the whole world what, what we say here all the time, that the promises of God can be trusted because our God is faithful to keep his word. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, I just asked that in these last days, Lord, when there's going to be a lot of pressure and a lot of intellectual arguments against your people, against the nation of Israel, why they are not your chosen people and why the church has replaced them. I just ask, Lord, that you'll just put it in all of our hearts to see the truth of your word and to embrace it and to have a heart like Paul did and like you did for the Jewish people that we desire their salvation, that we know they are your special people, not just any ordinary people, that even though they're living in ungodliness now, we should pray for them and have a heart for them and treat them well. I just ask that you'll put that in all of our hearts, Lord, towards your people. And we just thank you for speaking to us tonight through your word, for these three chapters that you've given us here in the book of Revelation or Romans, that you'll just help us to see the importance of them and why you have them placed here. And I thank you that you'll do that for all of us tonight. And I thank you for gathering with us here as we gather together and ask you to bless everyone here on their trip home. Bless any families that are going through trials with their children. You just deliver them from that, Lord. And we, I just ask that your spirit will meet us here again in a mighty way as we meet again on Sunday, Lord willing. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.